I'm sure that most, if not all of us, heard the news this week that uh, Billy Graham died at the age of 99 years old. And I just want to begin with a few comments uh, about him and his ministry. There's always a danger, I think, to put people on too high of a, of a pedestal. That danger goes down once they have died because now their life is complete, their testimony is complete, and you can step back with some objectivity. I think we should all be very thankful for the life and the ministry of Billy Graham. He uh, will go down, I believe, as the most influential evangelical Christian of the 20th century. And his simple message, and what a simple message it was, okay? but just a simple gospel message that God loves you, that Jesus is a savior, and if you put your trust in him, you can have eternal life. That basic sort of John three sixteen message, combined with a remarkable life of integrity, was a very powerful tool in the hands of God. And my own salvation story has Billy Graham in it. Um, I I've talked about my parents occasionally, but my, my dad grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He grew up in a very strict Dutch Reformed uh, church. And the, the version that that church practiced was such that my dad, somehow along the way, never heard or got that you needed to have a personal faith in Jesus. Like, he thought he was going to heaven because he was Dutch, and he was reformed. Like... <laughs> What more does a sinner need to get into heaven than to be Dutch and to be reformed? So when he was a junior in high school, uh, he went on a trip all the way to Washington, D.C. to attend a Youth for Christ rally. And there at that uh, gathering, they had a bunch of different speakers, but Billy Graham was one of the speakers that they had. And God used that experience to really, my dad would say that's when he was converted when he was regenerated, and he came home just fired up about Jesus and excited. He shared his faith with his girlfriend, my mom, who received Christ, and they shared Christ with me. And so I think that's an example of the hard-to-determine multiplying effect of Billy Graham's ministry because you look at those rallies and there's you know, tens of thousands of people there and then all those people that go forward, uh, of course, and respond in some way, but then you don't realize how those people all go home and they, you know, not, I'm sure not all of them, but many of them living a, a new life in Christ and how then that had an effect and you see how multiplication can take place, and I think it certainly did through his uh, ministry. I heard him preach one time uh, in Indianapolis, and I, I wanted to hear him because I, he was getting old at that point, and I didn't know how much longer he would be preaching, and I thought, you know, I don't want to not have a chance to hear him live. And so I attended that uh, crusade, and I'm uh, glad that I, that I did. Anybody here? Receive Christ, I know there's at least one, receive Christ at a Billy Graham, like you were there and you responded to the gospel message under Billy Graham. I know I got one dear sister right here. Anybody else? Okay. All right. Well, that blows that theory. Uh, 
but we can be glad for Jan Higgins going to heaven, amen? <laughs> Many years ago, I read this book. <clears throat> this is the autobiography of, of Billy Graham, uh, cleverly entitled, Just As I Am, the hymn they would sing at his, uh, at his uh, preaching. And uh, I, I read it because I love biographies, and I have had a real appreciation for him and his ministry. And, uh, you know, an autobiography, one of the benefits of an autobiography, a, a, a biography is a story about a life, okay? A writer is writing about somebody, what happened in their life and these details and things. An autobiography is written by the person themselves, and the benefit of an autobiography is that you, you not only get the details of the life, but you actually get into their mind, and you get into their emotions, and what they were thinking and feeling as they experienced whatever it is that uh, they are uh, describing. So a biography describes a life, an autobiography describes an inner life. What were they thinking? What were they feeling? What were they longing for? And the passage we have before us here, and by the way, last week we kicked off Romans, and uh, we just did the little greetings, I called it greetings and gospel there at the beginning. The section that we have before us is still a part of this kind of like salutation, so he's, he's sort of warming up here still, but what is, what is the blessing of this passage is that the Apostle Paul writes autobiographically, and with these words, we actually get to get into the the mind and the heart, the prayers and the longings of the Apostle Paul. This is, again, known as salutation. All his letters, with the exception maybe of Galatians, include this kind of language in the introduction. And uh, so we're going to dive into it right now. I'm going to read the whole section, and then we're going to go back and take it apart. I'm beginning now, Romans 1, verse 8. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am, <clears throat> so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. May God bless his word to our hearts today. For most of Romans, we're going to find that Paul is hardly self-referential. Like, he does not talk about himself except at the beginning of the letter and at the end. And here we have the Apostle Paul, he's clearly talking about himself. I count 11 eyes with a few scattered minds and mys in there. And so he's, he's writing autobiographical. And we need to savor these because he doesn't do very much of it here in Rome, in Romans. Uh, and we should be glad that he does. And, I, and, and the reason I say that is that 
few of us are ever going to have the chance to meet an apostle. Now I say few of us because there are a few old people in this room and I (laughs) hold out the possibility that maybe along the way you actually met one. But none of us have met an apostle. What would have been like to meet an apostle? What would have been going on in their minds if you would have got to know them? We're never gonna get that opportunity and yet, the mature Christians in our, in our church would, would tell you that along the way, oftentimes the way that God grows us spiritually is that he puts somebody in our life who's a little further down the path than us. Somebody that has been around the spiritual block a few times or more. In fact, you could probably ask some of our seasoned Christians, how, did you, how have you grown to the place that you have? And they would say, well, you know, the church or these sermons or this book I read or whatever, but a huge part of that would probably be somebody that God used to inspire you uh, to, to be like them. And you get to know them and you get to sense their values and priorities and you say to yourself, you know what, I'd like to be like them. And that's where this passage allows us kind of all to meet Paul, maybe spend a little time with him here and to sense from him what he is thinking about, what he is praying about what he is longing for, and by that to be inspired to, to, to do the same. Uh, because other than meeting Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul is probably the highest example of Christianity that has ever lived. Like he embodies the gospel, and so to see what he was like should inspire all of us to say that we wanna, we wanna be like that to be encouraged to be like that. So let's get into his heart, his head, his prayers, and see what he is, and we're beginning thinking about, okay? How does a godly Christian think? This is verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So you'll notice that in my outline today where I've got some nice alliteration that's going, and the first thing that I want you to see here is that thinking is marked by thanksgiving. Paul's thinking is marked by thanksgiving. Now what is thanksgiving? Well, it's maybe obvious, but just to be clear, thanksgiving is when we uh, recognize and appreciate somebody or something in our life for which we are grateful we, are, we, are, we give thanks for them or for the experience or whatever it might be. The opposite of thanksgiving is to take things for granted. It is to be entitled. It is to be presumptuous. Thanksgiving is the opposite of those things. And here Paul gives an example of how thankfulness should work in us. Notice that he says here that he thanks God through Jesus Christ. So we see in this that his thanksgiving is not First of all, vertic- or, uh, horizontal, it is vertical. Now, we oftentimes don't do that. We begin th- on the horizontal. We'll say, well, thank you very much for my coffee this morning. Thank you very much for washing the car. Thank you very much for this, that, or the other. We begin horizontal, and we never go vertical. Paul begins vertical, and then he goes horizontal. I give thanks to God for you, for your faith, because it is proclaimed in all the world. Christian thanksgiving recognizes that every good and perfect gift comes from above. James 1.5. Okay? 
So when I experience something or I, I feel gratitude in my heart, my instinct is to first of all give thanks to God for it. Now that doesn't mean we can't thank the person or whatever for it, but we begin with God. God, thank you for this good gift in my life. He thanks God for them. And notice that what he is rejoicing in them, about them, is what he says here, that their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Now that's probably hyperbole. There was some Eskimo somewhere who hadn't heard about the Romans' faith, I'm sure. He's saying that, generally speaking, maybe in the Christian church, everybody is talking about what's going on in your church. They're excited about what is happening, what God is doing in your church. And notice that they are very well known for the quality of their faith and their Christian lives. Now specifically here, and I want to go back to verse 5 because I did not give it the service it's, it dude last week. Uh, because this connects with what specifically Paul's excited about. In verse 5, here's what he says. Through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Do you hear that? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That verse right there summarizes Paul's entire life mission. Everything that Paul was about seen right here. He wants, he wants the gospel to go forth. He wants for uh, that gospel to produce faith. He wants that faith to produce obedience. That's why he calls it the obedience of faith. Genuine saving faith shows itself in a transformed life. In fact, that's almost an outline of Romans. You have 11 chapters of gospel. Starting in chapter 12, it's like, now what difference does this make in our life and the way that we live? Because it always does. It is the obedience of faith. It is not it is, it is the faith that produces the obedience, okay? There are millions of people today that are in churches around the world that are doing the opposite of that. They are hoping that by being obedient that this will somehow produce saving faith in them, which is a works-based righteousness. We're not, we're not earning our way. It is faith that produces the obedience, not obedience that produces the faith. So if you're here today thinking, I must be right with God, why? Because I went to church today. You are completely missing the gospel, Versus the other people that maybe are here saying, I'm really glad that I went to church today, not to be saved, but because I am saved, right? It is an obedience that flows from genuine saving faith, a changed life, a new life. And Paul's whole mission is to bring that gift, that gospel, to all the nations of the earth. Notice why. For the sake of his name, the ultimate the missions and evangelism and churches all exist for an ultimate goal, which is that Jesus' name would be lifted high for the sake of his name, for the glory of Christ, for the fame of his name in all the world, that all the nations might bow before Jesus and offer worship to him through the gospel. We say it this way, it's all about him. Okay? That Christ is the ultimate. And for Paul, he certainly was, and that's what Paul was all about. So whenever he saw evidence of that happening in people's lives, he got really thankful. He got really thankful. So here's the point. Think like an apostle, and you will thank like an apostle. I hope you appreciate that. I worked hard on that, okay? 
think like an apostle, and you will thank like an apostle. Are you thankful today? Are you a thankful person as you sit here today? Now let me ask you, what are you thankful for and why are you thankful for it? Because if, if I said to you, are you thankful today? And you said, yes, and I said, for what? And you go, my family, my car, my job, my health. I could go to the, uh, you know, the annual conference of atheists in Northwest Indiana and they would say exactly the same thing. What are you thankful for? I'm thankful for my health, I'm thankful for my family. And it's fine to be thankful for those things. But we don't see that being what Paul is highlighting here. What he is highlighting here are evidences of gospel fruit and kingdom work and the work of God in people's life. And mature Christians' thanksgiving will roll in those same categories. So notice that Paul doesn't write them and say, I'm thankful to hear the Roman soccer team is having a good season. And some of you laugh because it sounds so ridiculous. And yet, if we listen in the hallways of churches between services, what are people talking about? He doesn't say, I'm so thankful to hear that the Roman stock market is up. It would be ludicrous to see that in Holy Scripture. Like, that's so superficial. And yet, what do you hear people talking about in churches in the hallways between services? He doesn't say, I'm thankful to hear that Nero is acting, enacting political policies that we agree with. And yet, what do you hear people, Christian people, seemingly only able to talk about, post about, on their social media? Paul's eye is on the kingdom of God and gospel ministry and the fame of Jesus' name. And so, since that's his priority, since that's what he's thinking about, that is what he is thankful for and what he highlights even here. So you think like an apostle, you think like an apostle. Again, what are you thankful for? What are you really thankful for? That you have a family or evidences of God's graces at work in your family. Okay? That you have a job or evidences that God's gracious provision to you in your life. Again, you go vertical before you go horizontal. Or to bring it down home to us here, what are you thankful for? Now I wrote here the local pro team having a great year. But I can't think of one around here that's doing that, so. And I can't think about it because I don't follow it at all. That's a joke, uh, if you know me. But are you, are you, are you, is it the local pro team having, is it, is it spring pitchers and catchers showing up at spring training? Or your church family meeting the spiritual needs of the city of Gary, Indiana? Your church family trying to reach into the Chinese community in Northwest Indiana where there's not one church for the Chinese community. Folks being baptized, is that a source of joy and thanksgiving? We have one coming up in a couple weeks. 
What gets your thanksgiving on? Because that will evidence for you what you really care about. And we look at Paul and we see the superficial things. He's like, eh. Gospel ministry, God's work in people's life, the name of Jesus going forth. Thanksgiving to God. We need to train our minds to see those things in those categories as the things that we really value and celebrate and give thanks to God no matter where we see them appearing. So, his thinking. He moves on now to his praying, and I wouldn't want to say that there isn't a connection between what we think about and what we pray about, because look at verse 9. Paul says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. I take that to mean this flows out of my heart, like I, I'm, I'm authentic in this, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And we talked last week about how Paul had wanted to go to Rome, and he actually ultimately wants to go to Spain. And apparently he had been asking God, let me go to Rome, let me go to Rome, let me go to Rome, and that hadn't happened yet, which itself is an encouragement to us. You ever think to yourself, you know, if I was more godly, maybe God would answer my prayers about X, Y, or Z. And yet we see the Apostle Paul here beseeching God for a specific request, coming to God all the time about it, and God kept going, no, no, no. I find that encouraging. I don't know about you. For those prayers that don't seem to be answered as quickly as we would like and in the way that we would like. But I digress. That's not even in the notes here. Um, He begins by saying, for God is my witness He's invoking the testimony of God who alone would know the content and quality of his prayers. I find that challenging because honestly, my prayers often are embarrassing. How about you? And if God was to be a witness and say, well, really, Paul, let me just tell you, or Steve, you wanna know what he's really praying about, everybody? A lot of my prayers I'd really rather not be known. How about you? both in content and in quality. It's not so much, though, the content that he's talking about as it is the frequency. Without ceasing, always in my prayers. This is a a reminder of that little verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, that we are to pray without ceasing. You ever read that and you feel convicted like, How can I pray without ceasing? Like, I can't pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I can hardly pray for 10 minutes, much less without ceasing. What is this talking about? Well, it's not so much saying that we need to pray 24 hours a day. It is a call to persistence in prayer, to keep on praying. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep at it. Keep praying. Praying, Jesus taught a similar truth. He he tells a parable in Luke 18 about a judge and a widow, and I'm not gonna tell the whole parable because Luke gives the point of the parable in verse one when he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Even Jesus recognized the human tendency with prayer to like get discouraged in it, and it's not happening yet, and I don't know that it's ever going to happen. And he gives us an example 
God said no to go to Rome. He said, I'd like to go to Rome. God said no. I'd like to go to Rome. God said no. On and on and on and on and on. The Apostle Paul keeps saying, I want to go to Rome. Roman spring sounds great, doesn't it? Anybody here not like to have a trip to Rome? I think we all probably like to do that. But he kept going to God with it is the point. Do you have a prayer request that you have prayed for without ceasing, persistently? I think in my life, the the best example of that would be that I prayed nearly every week for 26 years that God would provide a wife for me. 26 years. Now I have the privilege not of praying for a wife, but to pray for my wife, which is a different kind of prayer, but to be persistent in prayer. Anybody here have a long-term prayer item and you're sort of discouraged in it? Like God doesn't seem to be taking things the direction that you're asking him to do in that prayer? And you think, well, what's the point? Why should I keep doing this? We have here the Apostle Paul who understands prayer way better than you and I do, and his conclusion is be persistent with it. And he was about going to Rome. Another side note, did God ever answer his prayer? Not in the way that he intended. Paul's gonna go to Jerusalem, he's going to get arrested, he's going to be put in prison for like a couple years, he is going to appeal to Caesar, he's gonna be shipwrecked on an island, he's gonna be bitten by a snake, and he's ultimately gonna find himself in Rome for two years under house arrest. God answered his prayer. Not the way that he intended. I also add that, it's not in the, mo- in the notes here, but that's a kind of interesting to think about. You've been praying something, but right now you feel like you're on the island Malta. And you just got bit by a snake. And you think, God's never gonna answer my prayers. You hang in there, okay? Rome is coming. Rome is coming. So, praying with persistence, thinking with thanksgiving, And the next one I find the most interesting, which is to get into the longings of the Apostle Paul, like what he's really hoping for. Look at verse 11 again. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. These longings, which I'm saying are longings marked by love. So thanksgiving marked by, or thinking marked by thanksgiving, praying marked by persistence, and longings marked by love. Paul writes to these people, realize he doesn't know any of them or hardly any of them. He's never been to Rome. He doesn't know them, and yet he says, I long to be with you. I've been praying without ceasing to come to you. What is the explanation for the Apostle Paul having such deep desires like this? This is Christian love, or what we might call Christian brotherhood or sisterhood, where in Christ we feel a unity and a love even for people that we don't know, for fellow Christians that we don't No, and that's why we hear about Abraham Thomas comes and he shares some story about a little church up in the sticks of India that we're praying for and we're hoping for and all that we care for those people. Why? Because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That's why we see those horrible pictures of ISIS doing things to Christians. And we don't sort of like go, ah, it doesn't matter. Our hearts go to them. Why? Because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus, there is a status of love that we feel for one another. And that is why one of the biggest blessings in the Christian life is being with other like-minded Christians. Amen? (laughs) To be around other Christians that you can share with, or what Paul describes here, he wants to impart a spiritual gift to them. Does this mean like a spiritual gift, like in 1 Corinthians 12, kind of like, you know, knowledge or service or something? No, probably more generally a blessing. He wants to encourage them with spiritual grace. He wants to be with these Christians, and he says that we're going to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now again, this is the Apostle Paul, folks. So if you're here going, you know what, young people and New Christians, they need to be around other Christians. It's good for them. Me, I've advanced to a place where I can pretty much fly solo now. I don't need other Christians in my life. Actually, here you have the Apostle Paul saying, I need encouragement from you. I want to come and I want to encourage you, and I want you to be an encouragement to me. We are going to be mutually ministering to one another What a great picture that ought to be of whenever God's people get together. Like if you come to church and go, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna suck these people dry. I'm gonna get everything I can out of them. No, no, you're coming in order to be blessed and to bless. It goes, it's a two-way street when properly done. Even the Apostle Paul needed this Refreshment, And I want you to see here that he says we're going to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And we see in this that what Paul has in mind here is not sort of the superficial socializing that unbelievers can do, but rather that faith level fellowship that uniquely God's people can do. We are encouraged by each other's faith. And for that to happen, our relationships and the content of our conversations have to get down to that spiritual level, which I have found in the modern church to be a challenging thing because we are all much more comfortable talking about the weather, talking about our hobbies, talking about our kids and our our families and things like this, things that you could talk about at the local bar with anybody about. We, We like that level of conversation, but there is something sadly in us that gets a little awkward when it gets down to that more spiritual level. And Bethel Church, we need to get better at this. We need to get better at this. And to that end, I I have some, here's some starter questions that will help get us there. Like, to say this to a fellow brother or sister, what's God been teaching you lately? That's not very... Scary, is it? Like, what's God been teaching you lately? Bam, all of a sudden, what are you talking about? Not the weather, not the bears. You're talking about things that matter for eternity. What is a, what's, tell me your story. What's your spiritual story? How'd you come to faith? What is something I can pray for you about? You're never gonna have somebody look at you and go, jerk. No, I, I have never had anybody, I, and I, I'm a pastor, so I say this a lot, I've never had anybody 
respond negatively to the question, what can I pray for you about? Who has God used mostly in your life to grow you as a Christian? What are you reading right now for spiritual profit? Things like this that just get us down to that faith level. This is how we're encouraged mutually in our faith. Now I want to say this too. That is not likely going to happen on Sunday morning at a worship service. And this is one of the challenges that I say lovingly to many of you that if this is the like, extent of your spiritual experience is parking the car, coming into church, doing this, leaving, and then going home, the whole thing that Paul's talking about here is a missing category in your Christian experience. In order for this kind of thing to happen, you've got to be in context where you can actually encourage one another in the faith, talk about these things. So that's why, for example, we, we try to provide context for this. Like my wife Jennifer went uh, women on a mission yesterday. We had 100 women here, gathered here, yeah, 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 yeah. and <laughs> I meant that positively. Those, if you, if you do the study, those are the Greek words for spiritual conversation. <laughs> they talked, they had a little time, but then they broke up into groups and they went and they ministered in the community. Jennifer came home and she was talking all about it. That's a context to, for that to happen. Our small groups is a huge place that we strive to create context for intentional spiritual fellowship, where we get past the superficial and actually get involved in each other's lives. These things are critically important. Even apostles need it. Even apostles need it, and so do you. Now Paul's love here, notice, extends beyond the Roman Christians. Look at verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now these, these words translate awkwardly. Greeks and barbarians. Conan forever ruined the word barbarian. Okay, Wise and foolish. We look at this and it seems sort of disparaging. He doesn't mean it disparaging at all, okay? A barbarian is simply somebody who is non-Greek. So to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish, this is those that are maybe educated and have access to that, and those that do not, to the civilized and those that are not. What Paul is basically saying is that he feels an obligation of gospel ministry to everybody. All the categories of life and humanity, all of them, he feels obligation to. Why? Because God's love and gospel extends to all of them. All these categories, the educated, the not, the haves, the not, and this is going to be one of the main themes of Romans is this distinction of Jew and Gentile, for example, is something that in Christ no longer matters. And Paul says he's under obligation. 
John Stott, in his commentary, says there's two kinds of obligations that people feel, two kinds of debts. There's the kind of like home mortgage one. So you go to the bank, you take out a mortgage, you now are obligated to pay back that debt. That's one kind of debt. Another kind of debt is if I come to you and I say, hey, here's $1,000, could you please take that to Mrs. Jones? Now you feel an obligation for $1,000, not because you've borrowed it, but because you have been given it to give it to somebody else. And what Paul is saying here is the obligation that he feels with the gospel is that God has given him something way more valuable than $1,000 or a home mortgage or anything else. It is the gospel of Christ. He has been given it to him, and now his obligation is to give it out to everybody, to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, to all people. He is obligated. A debt. Friends, I think that many of us do not realize that when it comes to evangelism and the gospel, this is not a, when I get around to it, we have a debt. We have an obligation to share this message of good news. How different we would approach our evangelism if this was the case. And I think about our own church's obligation to Northwest Indiana. You wanna think about a community that is a microcosm of these categories that Paul writes about it, it's Northwest Indiana, where you've got, I mean, you got the Greeks and you got the non-Greeks. You've got the wise and you got barbarians. And everything in between, right here in our backyard. Are we obligated to it? Do you feel an obligation with the gospel in the way that Paul talks about? I'd like to read this carefully. For us, it isn't, an, it isn't an obligation. It is more if opportunity allows, if I get around to it. Or our church's obligation to the people of Northwest Indiana, are we obligated or not? Would you be okay if we didn't do mission them, or more and better, as long as your needs were being met and your kids were being told about Jesus? How many of us would be totally okay being at a church as long as those categories were being fulfilled? As long as I am being ushered into heaven and the people that I love are being ushered into heaven, that's a good church. I can tell you one person who would never go to a church like that. Saul of Tarsus would never go to a church like that. And I wonder how many of us might. And to ask the question, are we that? Do we as a collectively, as a church, feel a sense of duty and responsibility do we get on the train to go into the city and do we look at these people and think that person is a soul that is going to spend eternity somewhere? And there's only two options. It is heaven or hell. And the only difference is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do I feel any obligation to them? Do you ever go to a gathering where there's a lot of people and just look around at humanity and just think, the way that we see things right now is gonna forever change. 
There is two destinies and one gospel and one church, and it's, it's us. The church, not this local church, but the church of Jesus Christ. Do we feel an obligation? And I wonder, friends, if we shouldn't repent as a church collectively and as Christians individually for our failure to fulfill that debt and to see the gospel as the ultimate stewardship responsibility that we have to the lost community around us. And I have one application, and it flows right out of this point. The reason that Paul would write this and say this and feel this and think this and pray this is that Paul recognized that God's love is for everyone. That God's gospel and heart is for all people. And we can say that. We shouldn't let our theology somehow trip us up on that, that God wants all to repent and to come to a knowledge of the gospel. And Paul's heart here is inclusive. And it's not inclusive like in the world inclusive means everybody's good and every path goes to God and nobody's right and nobody's wrong. That's not the inclusive that he's talking about. But rather that God's desire to save and God's provision through Christ extends to every single person that will believe. That's the next verse, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. You here, anybody here, if you believe, you don't have to think, am I a Greek, am I a barbarian, am I civilized or not? Am I worthy of this or not? You're not. But Christ is worthy, and if you believe, you will be saved. For all who believe, who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, irrespective of your skin color and your story and your status and who you are. Now why should that be a comfort for us? Well, let's look back at the list. Who are we on the list? Are we the Greeks? Now in Northwest Indiana we we do have a few Greeks so it's possible. You might be a Greek here. Are we high society? Anybody fly in this morning from D.C. to attend church? Probably not. Who are we in the list? We are the barbarians. We are. We are the non-Greek culture, non-Greek speaking, non-Jewish, plain old Gentiles. But that's okay, because the gospel is for barbarians too. Barbarians like us. And this theme, so hugely important in Romans, we're gonna see it again next week. And if this doesn't inspire you, then let me just tell you a couple stories about Billy Graham. When Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested in the Birmingham civil rights protests and put in prison, Who paid his bail to get out of jail? Billy Graham. Billy Graham refused to preach to any segregated congregation or crowd. And there is one famous story. He was preaching 
I don't know how many people were there, typically thousands, tens of thousands of people were there. He gets to the podium and he looks out and he sees that there is a rope that goes off into the crowd and the whites were to be on one side and the blacks were to be on the other. And Billy Graham called the usher over and he says, he goes, get rid of that rope. Get that rope out of here right now. And the usher refused. And Billy Graham walked down to the front and he grabbed the rope and he took it away. Billy Graham said, Christianity is not a white man's religion and don't let anybody tell you that it's black and white. Christ belongs to all people. I wonder if we could have gotten into the mind and the prayers and the desires of Billy Graham. How inspired we would be to be different than we are. And even better than Billy Graham is the Apostle Paul, chosen by God to the Gentiles, encounter with the living, resurrected Christ, inspired by God to write Holy Scripture. His thanksgivings and prayers are an example of what a godly man and woman thinks about, prays about, hopes for. So my dear friend, let's all look carefully into our hearts What do we see? What do we think? What do we think? What do we pray? And are our longings marked by love? May it be so. Amen.